0: Hi folks, uh, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, Asia Innovation. We're back with a returning guest, one of our very first actually, whom we had the pleasure of calling a little more than a year ago, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Indonesian supply chain financing startup Awantunai, Dino Setiawan. A year ago, Awan Tunai was in the midst of dealing with the initial onset of COVID-19 in Indonesia. Despite the difficulties of operating in the lending and financing industry, which was hit with high NPLs, Dino and his team managed to adapt quickly to the situation and turn it into a source of growth, launching several new products, extending financing to their suppliers, all while keeping their NPLs low. What's more impressive is that they did not only grow themselves amidst the pandemic, but also continue to support the growth of the micro-merchants and suppliers they serve. Now in 2021, Yinglan and I called Dino again to catch up on how they made it out of 2020 stronger than ever as a business and what they're on to this year in terms of digitalization and SaaS adoption.
1: Thanks, Paolo. Dino, thanks for taking time to come back on the show with us. If there was to be a winner for the prize of resilience in 2020, I have both hands up to vote for you. I think it's been a great year. I mean, it's a difficult year for most people, but in the course of last year, you have grown your loan book multiple times. finally gotten the P2P license, the full one, default rate is an all-time low, and you've got access to a double-digit in millions debt line from a world-class funder. So so great, and you received lots of awards from MAS, UNCDF, SME, Finance Forum, so lots of good news around. Love for you to bring us up to speed to what our has been up to in the past quarter since we had WingD on the show you know, in December. Hi, thank you, Ying Lan. Glad to be back. Look, it's been an incredibly exciting year. And, and, you know, as in times with business, sometimes luck just has a strange way of having a huge impact. As the pandemic hit, a lot of general lenders just just ran into a a lot of difficulties. And we were very, very fortunate to be solely focused in FMCG, basic necessities, and stable foods. So despite all the lockdowns, this particular supply chain simply stayed open. I mean, people needed to eat. And out of the, the pandemic, what really developed within Awantunai is a very strong focus on managing the risk we went through the the very worst credit cycle in recent history and achieved a 97 percent recovery rate so that's three percent npl in a a very difficult environment and to a certain extent it is a testament to to how fast we were able to adapt to the desperate situation deploy our saas systems to control risk and 2020 was a, a difficult year we had to cut budgets but what we did with the, the budget that we had was really develop the SaaS systems to to manage the risk. And that's why we were able to grow revenues by 600% whilst maintaining a, a near pristine loan book. So one of the really exciting parts out of all this is that the team really delivered. It's often been talked about that culture is very important and to be honest, I was a bit skeptical, right? It's like, yeah, okay, culture is important. But you know, you read it in the textbooks, you hear it in all those kind of podcasts and and, and TED talks. But th- the pandemic was when I realized it really is important. Uh the, the culture keeps the team together, the team battles for the company. And that's how we were able to really develop and deploy SaaS systems to control our risk. And now that we roll into twenty twenty one, I'm very excited because the, the foundations of the SaaS systems there where we we can get back to our primary original vision to digitize this whole supply chain.
0: Yeah, that's that's great, Dino. I mean, one of the words that I use to describe oantunai and the articles that I've written in the past is really anti-fragile, right? Because I mean, given the the situation that you've been in actually open up opportunities for you guys to double down on digitalization. You launched um, Awantoko and Grossier and extended financing to the wholesalers in your ecosystem. So the launching of all of these new products. So I wanted to know how has the adoption of these products been since they launched last year? And how have these products evolved as uh, the users of these apps? became more engaged. They started to spend more time on the app as opposed to doing these transactions offline. And do you have any interesting or remarkable stories from these micro-merchants or wholesalers that you work with who have benefited from these new products that you've launched?
1: Absolutely. 2020, I think, is a testament to the true power of a startup. We were able to essentially take what was a fourth quarter kind of a product roadmap, accelerate that, and deploy it within the first quarter. And, And this was a physical function of our sales team shutting down. We had national lockdowns, our sales teams simply couldn't be out there in the market. So we had to adapt very, very quickly in terms of how do we run sales when we can't have our field sales teams out there. Certainly there was that pivot towards telesales, but a lot of it was driven by us accelerating and throwing out the MVP out there so that we could start operating digitally. This has always been in our roadmap, but we actually planned it more for fourth quarter 2020, as opposed to once the pandemic hit, we just said, well, okay, non-digital sales is shutting down. So we need to get digital solutions out now and within weeks. So that's what I was really proud of in terms of the team. Operating conditions changed dramatically in the space of one to two months. And a testament to it, really that advantage of speed, product deployment, being able to continue operating with a, a very substantial pivot in operational flows, was one of the key highlights of our achievement there. And the results speak for themselves in terms of growing the book multiple times, growing revenue multiple times as well.
0: Yeah, given this, you know, this product growth and all of these fantastic results that you just shared with us, I think our listeners would be interested to know amidst all of these opportunities that you've had, I think one of the difficult things that startups often have is the problem of which of these opportunities do you tap? How do you prioritize which services to roll out and, and which ones to launch, especially when you're hard-pressed for time and, and in terms of other different constraints? So how did you think about prioritizing services to develop and launch on top of your financing foundation? How is Indonesia's current situation now, 2021 with the pandemic, affecting nice product trajectory this year?
1: I'll actually answer with a bit of an expansion on on the previous question. A a lot of the opportunities that that we've capitalized on was simply that, opportunistic. With the onset of the pandemic, what, what happened in the field was, we never thought we would be providing financing to our suppliers. But as first quarter 2020 rolled on, the banks simply stopped lending. So all of a sudden, a lot of our suppliers came to us requesting financing. And and our financing was geared more towards the micro segment. So it's certainly more expensive than SME bank financing. And we were puzzled, why are they coming to us? Until the feedback was that, look, the the opportunity presented itself. These healthy suppliers, which we have all the operational data on, their, their working capital supply was simply shut off. So that's when we actually took a deeper look into this space, managed to deploy a product that's very competitive to the SME banking products on offer. Certainly not on pricing, but on a whole lot of other features, which actually saw tremendous growth in the second half of 2020 and, and even now. And this comes back to your question in terms of how we're prioritizing. To a certain extent, we look at the opportunities that the market presents us. In 2020, the priority was very focused on on risk management. We certainly held the NPL monster back at 3% per month in the first quarter of 2020. And with the deployment of our systems, with our ability to respond very quickly, post-April, cohorts almost returned to 2019 levels. What, What essentially happened was in the first quarter of 2020, a lot of our micro merchants were used to buying the same SKU mix day in, day out. And what happened during the pandemic as it hit was lockdowns changed fundamentally the consumer buying patterns. A lot of people were simply cooking at home. So there was a fairly large uplift in staple foods. And because incomes were very tight, there were a lot of layoffs. There was a a real reduction in luxury goods, in cigarettes, upper-end FMCG brands. And that's what caused a, a lot of the lower performance anyway that we saw in the first quarter. Our merchants simply had unsold inventory. The good thing about our particular model is even though the inventory is slow moving, eventually it still sells. So after... 90 days of of recovery efforts, they managed to to sell off that inventory, and we ended up with 97% recovery rate, which is tremendously outperforming the general lending sector out there. Now, in terms of what we've been able to prioritize now, with budgets normalized, we're back to to the original vision of digitizing the supply chain, not only from a lending risk perspective, but really now just to, to fundamentally capture a lot of valuable transaction data. We now reorganize our sales team to focus on merchants who may not necessarily be ready to borrow. They don't need working capital. It's a seasonal thing. Or they, they may not essentially be approved by risk yet. There's insufficient information. But with our budgets normalized, we can push for adoption of the online order, which captures a lot of valuable transaction data, which is then validated through the SaaS systems that we've now deployed within a a lot of our supply network. It's
0: really exciting to know that you guys have gotten back on track, as you said, in terms of your overall mission really of digitalizing the supply chain in Indonesia, and not just focusing on financing, but in terms of even lightweight inventory management and SKU delivery, all of those things. And in terms of moving forward throughout this pandemic, clearly it's not abating anytime soon. Unfortunately, (laughs) I wanted to talk about that in terms as well of the industry that you guys came from, which is the financing sector. And you talked a lot about how it has been a difficult time for that industry. And do you see that situation changing in 2021 this year? And you can talk a little bit how that would affect the MSMEs that you're working with, and how would that affect your core service as a supply chain financing company?
1: Sure. Well, across the board, we've seen on average a a 30% reduction in overall sales, be it at the wholesaler level or downstream, even at the micro merchant level. Now, we are starting to see the beginnings of some kind of turnaround within consumer spending, but it's still not broad-based yet. So frankly, the marching orders for the team is that we will assume COVID just goes on, be it for the next six, 12 months. We're not going to change what we did. We were still able to to grow 600% in 2020 with how we were operating. And we'll simply continue that simply with the assumption that COVID continues. The bonus is should the vaccines get rolled out nationally, a general economic recovery happens. That's a bonus for us because then we'll see a general consumption pick up again. Our entire customer base will see a 30% uplift as demand normalizes. But for now, in terms of all our budgeting, our planning, we're simply factoring that COVID continues how this may impact the whole micro SME market. To be honest, micro SME lending is a space that we're going into that's in a way a lot of um, you know blue seas. We're not cannibalizing any of the bank market. In fact, what we're doing with our banking partners is we're opening up this new segment for them. In terms of the larger SME lending, certainly once the banks start opening up their financing again, and there's certainly indications of that anyway, certainly at the kind of more senior government levels where they do want the banks to start deploying that capital, even to kind of COVID-impacted restructured loans. We're starting to hear that at the more senior levels. But again, we've designed our product to not directly compete against the banks. I, I don't see FinTech's role as competing against the banks. There's this very large unbanked or underbanked segment in Indonesia that's you know, plenty of, of market share for all the fintechs. And that's essentially what we focus on. We, we certainly don't compete on pricing. Banks simply have the lower cost of capital, but we can certainly compete on product structure and product speed, specifically tailored for our suppliers that essentially validate or justifies the premium in price that they pay for our financing.
0: Right. Yeah. I think it's pretty interesting that the fact that you guys work in the blue ocean of sorts actually makes it easier for you guys to be flexible in terms of how you work with with the MSMEs in terms of financing. And you've touched upon this already a bit, how you guys were able to work with the micro merchants to keep repayment relatively high compared to the industry. It's come back to 2019 levels, as you mentioned. What are your plans in terms of sustaining this, especially since you've mentioned that you're still in pandemic mode this year?
1: Absolutely. Again, I reiterate, Like we got lucky. We, we really started our focus on FMCG back in 2019. One, it was a big enough segment, $80 billion per annum. Most of that, in fact, more than 80% of that goes through the traditional kind of general trade route as opposed to the the 20% that goes to the modern retailer, which is the supermarkets and and modern convenience stores and e-commerce for that matter. So it's a very large space, very much underserved given the lack of any kind of digitized infrastructure out there. We talk about face-to-face transactions as they purchase inventory, cash payments. This is really our blue ocean that we play in. Now, we got lucky because we actually focus on FMCG and staple foods and we were actually considering restaurants and cafes, should we go into that? Then the pandemic hit and clearly that entire segment was significantly impacted uh, adversely given the, the lockdowns. And yeah, so given a lot of a painful experience with risk back in the early days, 2017, 2018, that's why we took a very disciplined view on risk in 2019. I wanted my team to be the FMCG risk management experts in the country before we start expanding out into different industry segments. And that really just played out for us because when the pandemic hit, we were simply in that FMCG segment, $80 billion per annum that simply stayed open throughout all the lockdowns.
0: Yeah. You call it luck. I call it serendipity. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you were lucky, but at the same time, you were also prepared to really meet the fact that you are in that segment and make the most out of it. And, and, Hendra, who we've interviewed for our first episode this season, mentioned that the next wave of digitalization coming to Indonesia after the OJECs, the taxis, online shops, travel agencies, payments will be for the country's rural merchants and and restaurants or the warungs, right? And being in a, I would say a similar space, albeit from a supply chain perspective with financing and now more SaaS solutions. How do you see this wave of digitalization evolving in Indonesia? You mentioned that it's still a bit of a blue ocean and what are the market conditions to consider that could influence this wave of digitalization?
1: Definitely feel this digitalization of the micro merchants uh, out there is inevitable. It will happen. The issue is, well, who's going to figure it out? Because uh, I think SaaS adoption is tough in Indonesia, and and this is why you see that a lot of the Chinese business models simply didn't work in Indonesia. The, the user base is very different. This, I think, is is where our approach is a little bit more nuanced. We leverage the supply relationships that we've achieved by building fairly large supply network out there. We're providing our suppliers with a lot of SaaS solutions that's in a way driven by the lending. This is not the first time anyone's tried to put some kind of SaaS solution into the the downstream supply chain. Many have tried. All the major principles, even some of the major banks have all tried, and essentially it's all failed because tech adoption is extremely difficult in in Indonesia. And that's why we really lead in with the low-cost working capital. Everybody needs that in this particular segment. And it's the lending that actually pulls the SaaS adoption at this supplier level. And that's how we build our our supplier network. And from there, a lot of these suppliers have very tight relationships with their customers. These are like the, the micro merchants. And this relationship is what we leverage because there's already trust established there. The micro merchants listen to their suppliers. And when we offer a much better way for the suppliers to operate, essentially digitizing a lot of their orders where historically a merchant would write an order by hand, messy handwriting, maybe photograph that using WhatsApp and then send it to the supplier. Now it's all essentially digitized through an app. So that simplifies a lot of the the fulfillment functions that happens at the supplier. It runs through our pod system that we also provide to the suppliers. And the synergy there is, well, all that data starts coming into our system. It makes those customers bankable. Those micro merchants that were historically simply not bankable due to lack of any kind of credit history data or any kind of digitized transaction data, be it bank transfers or anything like that. Now, all of a sudden, through I Want Tonight, become able to access the low-cost bank capital that we deploy through our platform.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing that you guys are, are really working towards something that as you've said, a lot of people have failed to really make significant progress in, and that you guys continue to see progress in that. And one of the things I think has enabled A129 to make that work is really uh, this ecosystem. Right now, it's currently the three Awantunai plus micro merchants plus suppliers that you work with. One thing I was wondering is moving forward, how will this ecosystem grow? Will you guys move more upstream and what does this ecosystem look like for a moving forward?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, for now, we're simply going to assume that COVID is going to be around for the foreseeable future. So we're certainly f- staying focused on FMCG and staple foods. It's still an $80 billion segment. But we do have a research project upstream because we do a lot of work with the United Nations. We were actually introduced to the Swiss Capacity Building Fund. So we actually have Swiss government money funding a, a research project to see whether our downstream financing solution works in the upstream, where you get the agricultural aggregators who source supply from hundreds of of tiny micro-farmers. So it will be an amazing project if it succeeds because micro-farmer financing has historically had a very difficult history. Very few of these type of farmer financing programs have, have actually worked out. And similarly, like even the micro merchant space in Indonesia has been littered with a lot of failed banking programs. But given that we've solved it on the downstream, we certainly hope that we can also solve it for the upstream segment. And that literally means millions of of micro merchants, be it micro retailers, Or micro farmers
0: now i'd like to sort of zoom out and ask you as a ceo given all of the things that you've been through in these past three years it certainly has been i would say like a roller coaster ride in terms of going through many different product iterations to launch a one tempo and then going through the the pandemic and then coming out stronger than ever and now looking forward to going back to your core mission and doubling down on that. So what are the lessons that you've learned as a CEO these past three years? And uh, where do you see a 129 in the next five?
1: Look, I really see this journey as a marathon. And then that helps your mindset because then you start pacing yourself. So you literally don't mentally burn out because as you say, it's a roller coaster ride. And I think what what certainly helps is keeping this vision that there's a vision where you've got your whole organization culturally bought into achieving this vision. And you start solving the problems. There's just a, a never-ending supply of problems out there. But what I've learned is we have solved, let's say we, we go back two and a half years ago, what's simply seen as insurmountable problems. We hadn't solved risk yet. NPL were horrendously bad back then. We hadn't solved a uh, source of lending capital yet. We only had one institutional lender and, and sales and distribution was, was an issue. It, it was almost the case that, well, okay, do I just change business models out of this? But I think staying true to the vision and knowing deep down that, look, okay, let's just start solving the problems. And we certainly uh, applied a lot of disciplined approach to, to resolving the risk problems. Now we're best in class in terms of risk management. Uh, In terms of lending capital, it's now actually triple digit (laughs) in the millions. We certainly solved that particular supply issue. And in terms of the sales, we overcome a lot of the operationally difficult conditions during the pandemic. We've set up the infrastructure that now is set for scaling in 2021. So really pace yourself, keep discipline. You get there in the end.
0: Right. One problem at a time. And to wrap things out, I think we didn't get to try this the first time you were on on call with Insignia. So this is going to be pretty new for you. So we have this new segment, a Rapid Fire Round, where we ask some quick questions and you can just fire back with snappy answers, one-liners, and the sort. (laughs) So let's get started. What are the top three skills of a CEO?
1: Without a doubt, decision-making under uncertainty, Mm -hmm. patience, keeping you cool, and really open, honest, genuine communication. Your team can spot you when you're selling propaganda. You want to be authentic.
0: Right, right. Yeah, what's your favorite book, movie, or podcast? I, it's yeah.
1: an old one, which probably mm-hmm. is, it shows my age. It's Contact, uh, based on the book by Carl Sagan.
0: What did you like? Is there a particular line there or uh, th- that you remember?
1: Well, it treated the audience with intelligence. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the best kind of alien contact movies out there. No spaceships and all that. Very believable, very realistic.
0: Right, right. What is one misconception that yeah, you think people have about driving financial inclusion in Indonesia?
1: This one's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, There's some folks out there who say that, all right, I'm serving the unbanked, but I'm going to charge them 500% interest. (laughs) In my mind, that's not financial inclusion. Right, right, right.
0: Yeah, sort of shooting yourself in the foot there. (laughs) But yeah, what's your advice for early stage fintech founders in Southeast Asia?
1: So... I would say that there's a real force multiplier here for top talent. Actually, this was just off a conversation from a US graduate, Indonesian US graduate who was thinking to come back. And given the talent shortage in this region, having high caliber talent like that come back, you bring a real force multiplier. When I was in Silicon Valley, you know, so what? Everybody comes from Stanford, MIT, or Harvard. It was nothing special. But in Indonesia, wow, you can definitely achieve a lot more impact in this region.
0: Right, right. And is there anything that you like to share, or promote? Anything with with Awantunai or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of investors uh, still see us as, as lenders, but honestly, the vision is digitizing the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And that means having micro merchants stop writing their orders uh, by hand and actually going through the app. Having... Suppliers who, are, again, used to using pen and paper, kept very opaque books, ready to digitize, ready to become a modern business. That's our true vision. It just so happens we monetize through lending because the monetization rate in lending is 20x greater than anything you can achieve on the SaaS side. That's my key point. We are digitizing the supply chain.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really great point to make, especially with startups. You come to a first product market fit, like in your case with financing, but then that's really not the end of the road. There's a bigger mission out there and a lot more to achieve and build and deliver to your customers. Thanks, Dino, for coming back a year later. Actually, the date when we recorded, the first one was April 1st, actually. So it's oh, wow, so not yeah, that far off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, like every year you just come back on and, you know, <laughs> I think that, that it's a good sign that Every time that you come back, there's always something new that's going on with the 129. It's just a sign of of growth for you guys. And having gone through the initial impact of the pandemic and coming out stronger than ever because of it, it's definitely an inspiring story for the, the founders that are listening in can actually learn from. And excited to see where you're taking Awantunai along with Wendy, who's been on the show and, and been glad to talk with her as well. And then the rest of the team, as you call them, dedicated employees of Awantunai. So definitely a privilege to have uh, met you since 2019. I started covering mm-hmm. your story. Yes. I, I think that was the first article that I actually wrote on our blog uh, <laughs> was on Awantunai. <laughs> and it's come full circle, sort of seeing how how much you've grown. So definitely a privilege to have been a part of that.
1: Yeah, look, I, I mean. Not only am I grateful for a dedicated team, but I'm also grateful for you know insignia as a dedicated investor.
0: Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until the next call, I am Paolo Ainia and this has been on call with Insignia ventures.